Okay, now we got both guys on the phone here. I should probably do the. Uh, oh wait, let me, let me plug the. Uh, let me plug in the uh, Skype here so we can do the pre-show banter. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Indeed. Yes. Ah, Ban- banter, banter. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I was that's, that's some of the best banter I've heard in a while. <laughs> banter, damn it. Uh, Adam Gorightly wants to connect with you. Uh-oh. No, I, he already did. Thought we already done that. Yeah, I know. The, the uh, message is still up there. So here we go with the intro. Someday. Hey, who? What? Get your hands up. Stay where you are. Don't move. Don't reach for them guns. Take it easy, you galoots. Put away the hardware and relax. That's <laughs> Greg. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Well, uh, wow, that's that's kind of loud. This, this is called a fade here. There we go. Hey, it's Radio Mysterioso here for August sixteenth. I don't even know what day it is anymore. Of uh, you are correct, sir. Uh, I am correct, sir. Uh, 2015, and um, a few weeks ago, I was playing something, and I think uh, Adam Gorightly here said uh, that reminded of something called the missing fundamental, and he said, hey, I got a friend that knows about that, um, and I asked him what that was, and I read up on it, and it's it's a little, uh, it's not too hard to get, you know, in, in concept, but maybe in, in, pra- in, in a practical sense, it uh, it would be also um, the uh, uh, his friend who who we will call for the purposes of this interview John Federson right Federson yes yes oh okay you're coming in really loud I can't adjust between you two though so is there any way to turn your turn your microphone down sir <laughs> How about if I just speak more quietly Oh okay there we go All right Yeah as all as long as we're all at kind of the same I guess I have that what's that that software called uh, what levelator that uh, basically puts everything at the same level. Anyway, so uh, not only is he going to uh, talk to us about this missing fundamental thing, he also has a, a very interesting web. Is it a blog, John? It looks more like a more like a website, more less less a blog, more a website. Yeah, it's 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 a website that has a blogish component to it, right? And a, 
And it's called Singlenesia. Singlenesia. Mostly it's a repository for, uh, for interesting things that I enjoy. And there's a few of I mean, I picked up a couple other things that probably have nothing to do with what I advertised us talking about, but I want to bring up anyway, which we will bring up later. Um, That's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Go Rightly, who's been on here eight zillion times and uh, turned me on to bad music and everything. So, uh, uh, hey there, Go Rightly, Adam. Hello. Oh, he's there. I, I, okay. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> All right. Volume good? Volume yes. good? Vo- volume is okay. good now. It, everything looks like everything's A-OK. Uh, we're in a go condition, as uh, William Burroughs used to say. <laughs> I think I'd add that to my uh, the, the show beginning, mix a couple other things in, like uh, Burroughs saying things like, uh, whatever, we are in a go condition. Oh, so, anything Burroughs says is, is worth it. Did you ever I, – I noticed this uh, friend of mine, Mac Tonys, who's uh, the late Mac Tonys. I talked to him uh, about Burroughs, and he, I told him, you know, I've listened to more Burroughs than I've read. And he said, me too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true of me as well. Uh, I, I knew Mac Tonys as well. Oh, you did? Oh, I didn't know that. O- only online, but, uh, but yeah. we interacted quite, quite a lot on Oh, wow. Well, maybe we can talk about that. If I don't bring it... Well, let's talk about it now. What did you talk to him about? Oh, uh, uh, we met each other on a site that no longer exists that was called Chapel Perilous. Ah, yeah. And uh, so so most of our interactions were there. And, and, and well, we talked about the sort of things uh, I'm guessing you would expect to, to talk to Mac Tony's about, uh, uh, the uh, esoteric of sorts. But, but we weren't, you know... Involved in intellectual pursuits together, it was casual social talk. Oh, that's good. I mean, I think he knew a lot of people online, and um, I think his, his site is still being. Is it still up? Singlenesia has been off the off the internet for about a decade, and I just recently resurrected it and was going through all the old links and uh, was mm. surprised that that the Mac site was still going. Yeah, but it is. Posthuman blues. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Mac, wherever you are. Sorry, I forgot. He's probably laughing his ass off if he heard me. Um, well, I think after his death, he got a lot of interest. You contacting his parents and uh, Paul Kimball, and that kind of kept it going. All the friends that uh, made that link to his parents let him know how important they felt his work was. Yeah, I, I went back and forth with them for two or three years, and then it, it kind of died off. And now you've made me feel guilty, and I should get – it was mostly his mo- <laughs> mom that was getting in touch with me. I, I, she sent me one of his watches. Apparently, he collected watches. Ah, So I got a watch that has like a blinking dragon um, like LCD picture on it mm-hmm. that, that goes along with the time. I guess the, blagin, blah, blah, the dragon blinks um, the seconds. <laughs> That sounded like the dragon there for a second. Blagen, blagen. That Blagen Dragon uh, watch she, she sent to me, which I, I, I still have, I still treasure, and I still wear once in a while. Uh, John and I, turns out, has a lot, have a lot of the same interests uh, uh, vis-a-vis uh, UFO stuff, the occult. And I never talk about the occult stuff on this show, so this will be a good chance. So, John, maybe you can uh, tell us a little about what you're about, and we'll talk about the music thing to start it off. Well, Sure. What, could, could you ask a broader question than what are you, what are you about? Uh, yeah, so. what are you about? Okay, how about um, why were you interested to be on the show? Why did you say yes? I said yes because uh, because I I listened to a couple episodes of your show and I uh, I felt very simpatico about it uh, and and so the the topics that interest me and this 
you know, to, to bring it back to uh, the, the at least uh, nominal reason for, for the show is, uh, is, is perception and consciousness. And that's been, that's been the theme of my uh, interest since, I guess, I was 12. And, uh, and so, you know, you were talking about things like the missing fundamental and all of this ties directly into how we perceive the world or, or fail to perceive the world correctly. And what is correctly. Yeah. What, <laughs> as you say on your uh, site there, it's all um, defining terms or defining what you mean by what you mean, you know. And, and also, well, that's right. Also patterns. In a very real sense, uh, the kind of the function of society is to, uh, is to come to a collective agreement on the nature of reality. And so uh, reality, as we perceive it, is, uh, is a social thing. And are largely informed by social social things. Yeah, there was a um, and you can elaborate as much as you like on anything that you want to talk about. But that reminds me of a piece that you wrote. It had to do with um, plastic bags uh, with the candles and lighting the candles and the candles being a symbol for uh, a collective belief in something. Yes, uh, yes, one of my epiphanies. Yeah, and. What I got, and we'll describe for people that are listening what that is, but what I got from it basically was that, I'll read what I wrote down. Any belief system is not only a loose collection of pattern recognitions, but to anyone outside the belief system, their patterns, uh, their patterns, the ones that they hold outside the belief system, further confuse the issue, and they derive no benefit even in their inaccurate imp- interpretation of it. <laughs> <laughs> So what yeah, it is, yeah, it's like, that, you know, everybody's that, got this, like, group of belief systems or ideas. They send them off and people say, wow, look at that and whatever, like the, like the, uh, the bag floating over some city. And they, they make up their own ideas about it and they believe them fervently, even though they have no idea what the other people did, talked about, or how they came to their, their conclusions on that belief system. Is that, is that sort of what you were saying in that essay? Oh, that's uh, pretty nearly exactly what I was saying in an essay. So, uh, <laughs> so the, the the issue is that uh, our minds have a powerful need to understand everything that we experience, and when we are not given enough information to understand things, we'll make up an explanation that is as real to us as truth. It, it may or may not be true. That's that's meaningless to our minds. We just need something. We need a pattern. That was the other thing you had on your site is a lot about patterns because you had a at least one essay, and I think more about that we are pattern-recognizing uh, species. And that's how we go. You know, That was your model for how people deal with um, the world outside their heads, which is also, I guess, the world inside their heads too. But um, maybe you can that's elaborate right, a little right. bit on the on the pat on your pattern theory, which I, I found amazing, and it has a lot of um, uh, implications for a lot of stuff we talk on this show about about um, seeing weird stuff and and how you uh, how you process that. That's right, and uh, you know this is uh, this is the field of epistemology, really. Right, and uh, but but uh, but yeah, this is something that. Uh, that I came to, I hesitate to use the word believe, but it, it has become uh, one of my uh, favorite hypotheses uh, from the days when I worked in the neuroscience lab. And, uh, and, and when you look at uh, how brains work at a biochemical level, 
the notion that everything is pattern matching and pattern recognition is slap in your face obvious that this is how our brains work everything is just patterns and uh like like your 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 thoughts when you think there isn't a thought center in your brain uh your thoughts are patterns of biochemical activity across the entire brain organ so it's uh, more like a bell ringing and so it's it's all just patterns it seems like what you're arguing is that we better be aware of that we're pattern recognition or we will be hypnotized by the by the you know by our uh tendency to find the patterns and ignore things that are outside them well that's right and uh and you know on one level we are all aware of this uh uh you know the very fact <laughs> that we can uh learn and speak a language is uh making patterns of patterns we are very consciously aware of what we're doing when uh when we engage in language and uh, on an individual level it's easy to forget this it's it's very easy and seductive to assume that what we perceive is actually a good representation of reality and uh, and very often that's not the case that what we perceive is what we are convincing ourselves is the case and may or may not be real and uh, obviously drug experiences show this but uh normal uh states of mind do too so what do we do about it what do we do about it john <laughs> we're stuck. Well, we're stuck. <laughs> hey, I, I, let me jump in here a little go, bit. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I think uh, perhaps uh, as John was talking about the patterns, and I thought of uh, meditation. I'm not a big meditator, but uh, you definitely notice that when you try to still or quiet the mind, if there is such a thing, how you, <laughs> your mind immediately jumps into these patterns swirl around you know and trying to stop those is uh, quite a challenge well that's right uh, uh you know this this pattern this pattern business is what our brains are designed to do and uh to get them to stop is is effort and work that's a uh, in a sense an unnatural state uh but really, you can never get your mind to stop working. When you meditate, what you're really trying to do is uh, is knock down one level of abstraction. You're trying to quiet the conscious mind. The mind keeps going, and uh, but the conscious mind is the one that uh, causes us to misperceive in accordance with what we expect. And so if you can quiet that down, then uh, you have one less veil between you and reality. So how do you know when you quiet it down that you're seeing the reality? <laughs> Are you just well, saying, uh, I think I know because one time I, I think I did and I freaked out. I went, oh, my God, and it shut it off. <laughs> well, I would, I would say you know when you've achieved that state uh, when you are no longer evaluating your thoughts, when they just mm -hmm. come and go and you acknowledge that they existed, but you're not deciding whether they're true, you're not reacting to them, they just are. Yes, and, well, uh, that's, that sounds like a meditative the, state, yeah. Yeah, the closest I ever got to that, uh, aside from drugs, and maybe it is kind of a drug, is in a, a flotation tank. I don't know how long I was in that state, but I got there. Yeah, I have. Oh, it's, it, it, it's very interesting place to be. I, I have always wanted to do that. I've never, ha I've never had the chance. 
But uh, but uh, my interest in flotation tanks actually uh, that connects up to our perception of time, which is a fascinating topic. Although we're starting to wander afield, but uh, uh, the notion we'll, that, that I want time to wander, a, I, I would prefer <laughs> that we wander. Please go ahead. So so the notion you know there's the notion that uh, that time is a construct of consciousness uh-huh. that uh, that that a lot of uh, and. An increasing number of hardcore physicists argue that uh, that there is no such thing as time, as such, that uh, that it's sort of an illusion. That in a sense everything is happening simultaneously, and that that we perceive a uh, past and present and future is just that. It's our perception. It's not necessarily a reflection of physical reality. And uh, so it fascinates me because when you when you go into a flotation tank, your perception of time goes out the window. Totally, it, yeah. And uh, and so is that a false perception? Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I don't know what difference. it is, but uh, I'm trying to remember the amount of time I was in there. But it was like an uh, hour and a half, or maybe an hour and fifteen minutes. I thought, wow. I'm gonna have to be in here for an hour and fifteen minutes, and then once things slowed down and I got into another space, it was like, "Oh, time's up!" Wow, that's it's, right. That's it, right. It seemed like I don't know, ten or twenty minutes. Well, and, and you know, and 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 even for those of us who will never be in a flotation tank, uh, uh, we've all experienced it. You know, the time flies when you're having fun. Or uh, what I've noticed is uh, engaging in hard physical labor makes time seem to go faster. And, uh, oh, I was going to – I was going to – I excuse me, John. It just uh, occurred to me that uh, there's some fellows in uh, Portland where you're not too far from, I don't think. Uh, I am in that, Portland. Uh, yeah, they actually invited me for a free float there, and it's, uh, <laughs> their name of their business, I think, is Float On, and they actually uh, they got their hands in a lot of different stuff. Uh, they republished uh, John Lilly's book about metaprogramming, and yeah, I think that's the name of their business, Float On, and they're in, uh, I guess, downtown Portland. I'll, I'll I'll look into them. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me one bit because if it's weird or fringe, it's in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> and and in fact, uh, uh, Portland is also uh, there. I don't know if it still exists, but decades ago, it used to be uh, a major CIA office was here. That this was where <laughs> operations would be run. <laughs> really, what kind of operations? Well, who knows? I'm not in the CIA, so I'm not privy. <laughs> oh, come on. Something must have showed up in some release document. Because <laughs> we know a lot of, you know, we know a few of the different uh, MK Ultra things took place in, I think, San Francisco. Obviously, they did the, the thing with the, with the uh, hookers and the LSD there. I right, believe. right. Yeah. And the two-way mirrors uh, and, and the whole bit. And I... Uh, I am fairly confident in saying uh, that when I was of grade school age, which would have been, you know, what, 40 years ago, uh, that there was something going on that was sort of uh, 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 focused around trying to find the most intelligent students around and getting them to socialize together. And uh, the, so I don't know be, much beyond that. 
<laughs> they had, you know what? But they was, had that in San Diego where I grew up too. It was uh, it was uh, well, it was the, what it was was they just called it the gifted program, and they just tested a bunch of kids, and if they did well, they. St- I got stuck in a class where we didn't even have lectures or anything. We just sat around and read books and and had uh, sit down discussions like you know seventies encounter groups or something. It was just it wasn't actual real schoolwork, so I don't know what was going on in that class. Yes, yeah, isn't that odd? Although the the the, the gifted program, I was I was in. And one for my entire career or school career, oh, okay. but, uh, and that's how I got into computers, actually. So, <laughs> so yeah, I did want to uh, ask you about that job too. Um, it, it eventually, I the other thing, one thing that I did with uh, shutting off the thoughts, which was very difficult, was, and I think I've described this before, and you you guys probably know about it. Is just basically, I think Alan Watts talked about it, but it's basically sitting there and. S- Going through each sensation, sound, and everything, and stop and doing whatever you can to stop assigning a meaning to it, and you go one by exactly. one, one by one, and it it it'll take you twenty, thirty, forty minutes, an hour to do that. And when I got to the last one, that's when I, you know, I don't know if there was a light or I don't know what it was, but I got had this oh my god feeling, and as soon as I gave into it and said, oh my, it stopped immediately. I mean, it was like somebody shut off a switch. Oh, you really, you, is your mind blown? It can't be, so it shut it off. It was like a circuit breaker hit. That's, uh, that's like the first time I successfully induced an out-of-body experience. Uh, was that exact one? You know, it was, oh my god, I'm doing it, and then bam, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I did. I done it twice, but the, I guess the trick, and I, a lot of people who are meditators and know this probably know this, but the trick is to to not to give into that. Um, it's almost like a drug trip. No, don't give into the the fear or the or whatever. There's certain drugs where you can't, you don't really have any choice. It just sends you there, like DMT. It's like I don't want to do this. Well, that's too bad. You're going. Right. So. Yep. <laughs> it's called a trip for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> And if it's a good one, you 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 don't say I anything. It just it's uh, you it's just an existence, I suppose. Um, that, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that that when you when you snap back in from meditation or whatever, but when you do that uh, snap, that uh, I suspect what that is is your conscious judging mind saying, "Hey, hey, this is weird. I need to I need to operate on this," and uh, which is the exact opposite of what you were trying to achieve. Yeah, and so it takes a while. That I think that's instinct, and uh, it takes a while to you know. It's kind of like suppressing a gag reflex. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it can be done, but it takes practice. <laughs> that's that's a very good analogy, and it might disturb people, but I like it. <laughs> Doesn't disturb me at all. I think it's funny and and appropriate. Um, you what on your uh, site? Okay, maybe we can do the missing fundamental thing. First, um, uh, what is it? What is the missing fundamental and um, why is it? I, I think I what I see in it is a good model for some of the stuff we've been talking about here. Yes and no. It, this is... This is an odd effect. So, so what we're talking about is uh, when you play a note, then you have the primary frequency that the note is at, and then you have the fundamental frequencies where there's also energy that go off in both higher in frequency and lower in frequency, and those are the fundamentals. And uh, 
And I'm sure uh, musicians are probably cringing at my description here, but it's not so <laughs> far off. <laughs> but uh, so if you have a recording of such a note and you remove the middle part, the, 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 the fundament, the, the, the primary fundamental, and then you listen to it, you will hear that primary fundamental anyway, even if it's not there. And, uh, the reason for this is not even a function of consciousness. It's a uh, function of the circuitry in your brain. And so uh, it's highly reliable. Uh, um, yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's such a good and predictable effect that uh, it is being used by some uh, – earphone manufacturers to apparent to expand the frequency response of the earphones without wow. having to actually physically have them have a wider frequency response how would they do that so, <laughs> so <laughs> because you can you can artificially manipulate sounds to uh to cause this to happen so oh i see with the circuitry so, with circuitry that's right that's right so, uh, so in but, fact, but it, you but are. But it's still it's still happening in your brain. It's still happening in your brain. You 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 are in fact hearing something real. It's just not something that was real before your ear got involved. And so <laughs> and so, it, it's it's <laughs> this is yeah this is a lot to, uh, to grapple with. You know, uh, it's kind of out there. Let me give a little background how yeah, okay. I got into this. Then we can John can no, take I, it from there. But like I said, reading it, it made me think it's very relevant to a lot of stuff we talk about on this show. So go ahead, uh, Adam. So uh, six or seven months ago, I uh, was reading Graham Nash's uh, autobiography, which is called Wild Tales, and I, I have the little passage here, and he in it he says. And he's talking about singing duet with uh, David Crosby and, quote, on a couple of occasions, we've listened to playback of us singing together, looked at each other and gone, who the fuck is singing that third voice? (laughs) When we we isolated our voices, you know, they were playing it back. When we isolated our voices, there is no third part, exclamation point. Together, the air and wave generation of our voices create a ghost harmonic a third harmony that is only sometimes evident when we sing duet. So I read that and was like one of those aha moments. And it brought to mind a couple of experiences I had with what seemed like we, uh, the s- same type of phenomena. And the first was in the uh, late 70s. I was at a band practice. You know, my buddy Joe, they had a band and yeah. they were doing a rehearsal, a kind of rehearsal party, and we all dropped acid. <clears throat> and I heard this phenomena going on, and it's not—it's not a subtle nuance. It was <laughs> it's something there. It's like a blending of all the instruments created an entirely unique and another instrument or tone on top of everything. And I was going, "Whoa, <laughs> it's a trip!" And so, you know, during a break, I started telling the guys about this, and they were looking at me like I'm nuts, man. <laughs> And I thought, okay, I'm not even going to try to uh, argue about this one. I know I'm pretty sure I heard something, but you know uh, we're on all on acid, so I just kind of let it let it drop, you know. And then it wasn't until a lot of years later, in 2005, when my wife and I went to Mongolia, I heard the same damn phenomenon with the uh, Tuvan throat singers. 
going on. Like there was an extra voice there. Uh, wow. And that, but afterwards, I brought this to my wife's attention. She said, no, nah, I, <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't aware of that, you know. And so that was a few months ago I was thinking about this. And recently, a few weeks back, I saw a toast or a post about Tuvan throat singers, you know, and I started thinking about this again, you know, I thought I'd write something about it, but it was a challenge, you know, putting this into words and I was attempting to wrap my head around trying to string together a phrase or a sentence to convey how to describe it, you know, and I went back to the Graham Nash book, but you know how that is. I went all through it and I couldn't find the exact passage. So the phrase I came up with to describe this was phantom tone. When, like, voices or instruments are blended and out of this emerges this new and distinct uh, tone. And that's when I went to social media and uh, basically put that out there. I got my tweet I put out. Has anyone experienced a phenomenon I've dubbed phantom tone when voices slash instruments are blended and out of this emerges an extra tone? And that's where John and... uh, Several other people answered me to this, and John said something to the effect, yeah, I know exactly what that is. I was involved in a a study at the University of Oregon about all of this. That's that's exactly it. Although although since those days, uh, uh, I I think I may have turned a little bit, and I'm thinking now that perhaps what you experienced wasn't the missing fundamental effect, but rather beat frequencies. But mm-hmm. but so so it could go either way. <laughs> well, and I had I had uh, before you get off on the beat frequencies. Let's see, I had somebody let's see if I can find that. Yeah, Tim Cridland, who a friend of Greg and I, sit, he sent me a. Uh, he said it was in this book called. Uh, the Book of Highs, and it's called – he thought it was this phenomenon called Beat Head Hole. <laughs> and the uh, description of that on page 241 of uh, yeah, The read Book that. of Highs. Yeah, read that. That's pretty amazing. I'll read it here. It's uh, pretty short. We can make the brain hear a third pattern when only two frequency patterns are reaching it as input by the creation of a beat and the use of phrasing. Excuse me, phasing, it says. If we hook up tone-producing equipment to a stereo amplifier, one frequency is sent on one channel to one ear and another frequency on another channel to another ear. The frequencies are adjusted until the subject has the feeling that there is a large empty space in the center of his head. This initial perception is a frequency of an elliptical space. Adjustment and tuning of the frequencies can change the perceived shape from an ellipse to a circle to something that feels very much like a rectangle. <laughs> I don't know all about that last part, but uh, no, he's that, that, that's that's on the nose correct. That's, that's yeah. I, I did a lot of uh, engineering of those kinds of sonic spaces at the at the at the institute. What what which institute and what were you what was your job there? If you can talk about it, this is. This was at the University of Oregon, the Institute of Neuroscience. I was I was a uh, research assistant, and uh, which 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 is a little odd because uh, I am not a biologist, <laughs> and so <laughs> I am a computer guy. But uh, my job well, they needed uh, you. 
They, well, they, they certainly did. And, uh, but one of my duties was uh, to create specialized sounds. They were investigating how uh, we localize sound primarily, how we tell what direction it's coming from. And, uh, and so one of my tasks was to engineer sounds to, uh, <laughs> um, to trigger certain uh, effects in the brain. Oh, so yeah? they could what see kind of, what would happen. What certain effects were these? Anything <laughs> exceedingly interesting that we're uh, not supposed to know about? <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> no. None of this was in any way secret. Uh, the only reason I sound vague is because it begins to get incredibly technical. <laughs> so, well, but, you know, stupid it up a little bit. Um, what, what, what were you so doing the, with the tones and how were they affecting people? You know, what were the interesting things that came out of this, the research? Well, uh, well, let me start with the with the most interesting thing that came out from my point of view, okay. and because uh, that's easiest to explain. So, so the way we humans, uh, the, the primary the primary signal we use to determine what di- what direction a sound is coming from is the phase difference between the sound hitting the two ears. It'll hit one ear just a little bit sooner than the other, mm-hmm. and based on on that difference, we can tell laterally where the sound is coming from. And so, uh, as a direct correlation of age, the the uh, portion of the brain that does this becomes less able to do it, and uh, it's not hearing loss; it's uh, the brain being less able to interpret what it's hearing. Mm. And so, uh, so this can be corrected for uh, really easily with something that looks like a hearing aid, but uh, but uh, doesn't amplify sounds. It, it plays with the, the phase difference. And so, uh, so in a, this is why as you get older, uh, you have greater difficulty uh, understanding speech in noisy environments, uh, that sort of thing. I've had so that this since fixes I was a kid. that, makes you a 20-year-old again. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, well, I've had that since I was a kid. Um, I have a really hard time with uh, in noisy environments hearing people talk. So th- the way that it does is what it sounds like is – it's two hearing aids, right, or something that's, that basically goes in your ear, right? It's it's one hearing aid. Oh, really? So what does yes, it do? Does yes. it delay something partially? I, I I know I might be getting too technical, but I, I um, kind of a description of how that would work. How would you change the phase so, of something between two ears with a one device in one ear? Well, to to alter the phase of something, you only need to uh, delay or advance one's one ear. Right. And so, I'll, I'll, let me back this up. So we're talking about a theoretical device. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> we can we 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 were able you know we could absolutely do this in the lab, uh, but that was using headphones. Right. And so that was two ears. But uh, but so the our, the principal investigator was was hypothesizing that this could be done with a single corrective device, but which he, he may have done since then. I don't know. It's, yeah, actually what it sounds like is you could keep that thing out of phase permanently, and then your brain would adjust to that, and then that might, that, that, that might make it more sensitive to you know, how out of phase something really was coming in one side or the other. That makes sense? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in, in, in a sense, uh, it's, this isn't the sort of thing that the brain adapts well to, though. This <laughs> is a kind of precognitive, and so this is like if it's sort of like the the, the preamp in a sound system. 
And so it's before any of the the, the, the important stuff happens. <laughs> That's what I thought about the the um, the uh, missing fundamental. I read up on it and I thought, okay, the brain is neurologically um, uh, adding quote unquote that other tone. But the thing is, is it happening in the brain or is it happening in your in the physical part of your hearing? Does your ear do this somehow before it gets to your brain, or has it been conclusively proven that it's that's a that it's a function of the uh, brain and the signals coming to it? Well, now we get back to a matter of definitions because oh, okay. uh, there is no hard limit that you can say the brain ends here and the rest of the body starts ah, here. Okay. It's it's sort of like uh, saying when does space start, and so you know it's. It, it depends on it depends on how you want to define it, and yeah. so uh, what what we can say is it's precognitive. Uh, so so the higher level uh, brain processing isn't taking place yet. But what, so, what's know, uh, uh, interest, interesting? I've heard this from John and other people is that the Tuvan throat singers know <laughs> how to do this. When I heard them doing it, it was it's. Uh, something that uh, they had knowledge, you know, when they're uh, doing their singing, that they're creating this effect, which is just kind of a wild concept to think about, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, although, you know, when you, when you talk about musicians of any stripe, they do, musicians do absolutely amazing things that they are completely unaware are amazing and so you know but if you're trying to if you're trying to explain to somebody you know i need this effect and i you know that uh you could never do it like with that level of intention it's you know musicians they they, they sneak up to it by feel but yeah, really what yeah. you're doing is computationally astounding and uh it, so they, they music is, go ahead Oh, mu music is uh, is really special that way. Of, of all the art forms, you know, music is is maybe I would argue it's maybe the most primal, neuro neurologically speaking. Mm -hmm. What it, what it sounds like is that um, that an artist, a musician, would be able to produce some kind of effect, and like you said, by sneaking up on it. Uh, basically just saying, I want it to sound this way. And something that is, is uh, subconscious or, um, well, just subconscious, takes over and, uh, and, and creates the, you know, the physical movements needed to make that thing happen. And if they're really good at it, they, could, they probably could do it on command. It's like, I want mm -hmm. this thing to happen here. And they might even, might even be aware of how they're doing it, but it'll do that thing. That's right. That's right. It's it's a. I would say it's a little like juggling. That uh, uh you know, when yeah. you when you're juggling, yeah, you're not consciously saying my hand needs to be here. Now this one needs to be here. It's yeah. it's not like that at all. It's a it's a feel thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, it's but, a muscle memory thing too. I mean, I I, I noticed this was very strangely in uh, paragliding. One time I noticed that I was controlling, micro-controlling my movement over the ground when I was about, you know, five feet above the ground in an updraft by movements of my fingers. And I wasn't aware that I was doing it until I thought, wait, I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing. It was, it was just like this weird little aha moment. And, that, and that, in a very simple way is, uh, I think, might be sort of what's going on. Oh, yeah. And, and you can see when just driving hey, did, the car, uh, the same thing. 
<laughs> Which one of you want to see? As the car goes by. Did you, either of you guys either of you guys see the uh, thing on CNN about Glenn Campbell and Alzheimer's? No, no. Because I nope. know he has Alzheimer's. Okay, yeah, and very, I think uh, he stopped great documentary. touring. Well, he, yeah, he's in a he's in a facility now, but yeah, uh, like three years ago when this came on, his family became aware of it, and they went on the last tour across the uh, country, and I had the opportunity to see him. It was great, but uh, in his case, and a lot of uh, it seems like it happens in a lot of musicians, especially somebody like him, where you know music's been in his life; it's deeply embedded. Um, uh, towards the end, when his you know, mind was really starting to go, he couldn't remember uh, people, his wife or his daughters. But they'd you know he'd start singing a song, and the, the lyrics would come back, and he'd know how to pl- play it on the guitar. So there's uh, some you know something in in the brain and the spirit, whatever that uh, that that uh, music you know is deeply embedded in humans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's 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 set up a, a brain pattern. It's a kind of when you watch any, you know, you know, yeah. when you watch anybody who is highly skilled at what they do, they always make what they do look effortless. Yeah. And when when they are doing it, it actually is. You know, getting to that point wasn't. <laughs> but you know, right, the, right. Yeah. you know, people people talk about being right. in the zone, and uh, and and in that state you are no longer consciously thinking about what you're doing because consciously thinking about what you're doing will, will degrade how well you can do it. And, uh, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me at Mm -hmm. all that, that Glenn Campbell would retain his musical genius, uh, after his conscious mind is having great problems because that, because his conscious mind isn't really involved anymore at his skill level. Right. I have a friend that's studying music therapy. Right. Basically it's just, you know, it's, to play music for people that are, you know, having uh, uh, neurological problems or they're, you know, have Alzheimer's or whatever, because it seems to affect them a little bit differently on, on, a, on a level that where they can function and, and recognize the music and have a conscious, um, pleasurable reaction to music. Whereas if you just spoke to them, they, they have no reaction whatsoever. Right. You, you know, it's funny because uh, well, there's the old Gabby joke. Gifford... <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> we both, we both started talking there. That's uh... When Gabby Giffords went through her thing and brain injury, that was the first really contact uh, they made with with her, you know, as far as uh, uh, getting her to smile and react to stuff was somebody started singing a song and she joined in. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, something that uh, music works well with therapy for sure. Yeah, well, and it also helps that uh, music uses a completely different part of the brain than uh, than uh, like speech does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been many cases of people with uh, brain injury that could which, sing. Which, which part of which part of the brain is that? So, so speech tends where, to be. Where does uh, that look a Well, speech tends to be on the in the left hemisphere. Music tends to be in the right, and uh, and so the and the two activities are distinct enough that you know the. The people there have been many people who've had brain damage such that they could not speak, but they could sing, and so they could communicate perfectly well as long as they were singing what it is they were trying to say. Right. And, yeah, I and, heard uh, that. You know, because because it's a totally different part of the brain. <laughs> the other thing that uh, it's, this is my friend Julie. She lives in uh, New York State. She sent me a paper she wanted me to look at. Basically, it was describing um, 
there were, oh, what's the word, a, a bunch of New Deal um, WPA money was uh, spent on teaching deaf children to play instruments, which they did quite well in a lot of instances. Because yeah, they, that would be. They could feel the vibration. They could recognize what the vibration was, and then reproduce that vibration on the instrument. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And actually, this exact thing is one of the reasons why I am uh, fervently a believer that it's borderline criminal that we cut music out of uh, out of education. <laughs> you know, in, especially grade school education. And, uh, and, you know, that I think it's incredibly important in terms of, um, of mental development, that, that it can provide a scaffolding that, that you can use to construct your view of the world. Right. I think it's important. But in the end, I, I, I'm of the bent that in the end, everything is music anyway. Everything is patterns and everything is vibrations. And music is just the manipulation of vibrations. So if we're talking about everyday daily life why don't you give i get it i know what you're saying why don't you give us an example though of a pattern recognition how we deal with the pattern recognition and then we'll go into what if we get something that doesn't fit the pattern and what do we do with it um so you're asking for how being aware of pattern recognition can be useful in our daily life is that your question yeah i mean examples like you know what happens when i don't know when you are driving your car and you just you're you're going along, you're using pattern recognition the whole time, right? Um, That's right. Yeah, or or anything you do actually, because if something doesn't fit the pattern, then it comes up and you notice it, and you do something to either get it to fit the pattern or that keeps you from getting hit by another car or whatever the hell. But oh, and 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 you don't always notice it, and, uh, and yeah, you know that uh, that a lot of this, you know, we. We overestimate how important our conscious mind is in, in our perception of the world, that, that most of the information processing and, uh, and interpretation and discarding of information that our brains do happen before we're ever aware that it's happening. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so, and I think a great example of that is uh, vision, that, uh, that our retinas are crappy cameras that if <laughs> that if you if you could hook a video feed up to your eyeball you know it would look like you were looking through swiss cheese and it'd be all fuzzy you wouldn't have a clear field of view the reason that it looks like you have a clear field of view is because your brain corrects for this and it does so before you're ever aware of it and so it's no exaggeration to say that most of what you see, you're actually imagining. You know, you're filling it in. And, uh, and so this is, you're filling it in based on patterns you expect. So when something happens that you don't expect, very often you simply won't see it at all. And, uh, you know, there's the, uh, in, in college psychology classes, they often do a demonstration where, a big event is happening, and then a gorilla walks by in the background, and nobody sees the gorilla. Right. And this, this is that in action. And so, you know, you're just that just doesn't fit. I'm just your brain has discarded it. It doesn't exist. So what? Yeah, the, I, this every time this comes up, it reminds me um, Joe McMonigle's first book. I think it was called Mind Trek, and he had a 
a little paragraph where he said uh, perception is a function of time. And there's basically about 50 things. Well, not 50, but he had like 10 steps. And nine of the steps are going on before your conscious mind was even aware of it. Um, and it, you know, it, it happens in basically, you know, the, the entire sequence was happened in like a tenth of a second. Something that's like right. That. That's right. Consciousness is the most, the most spectacular thing our brain does. But it's not even, you know, more than a small percentage of what our brain is doing. It's just the one that, that we care about. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it's the one that's accessible to us right away, and that uh, where the where the uh, instrument can look at itself, where, whereas maybe the instrument can't look at a lot of the wiring and things like that, at least in a in a way that w- w- without detaching itself from, in some way, from the uh, the realization of it, and saying, and then accepting that that's what's going on, and saying, it's like, no, it, that's obvious that's what's going on. It's like. It's it's not obvious. It's all it's all your pattern recognition and all the uh, stuff that's going on sub rosa in your subconscious, where where you see something and your consciousness, your conscious brain, your actually your subconscious brain is furiously trying to stuff whatever it is into the right box, so that it's available to your conscious uh, awareness when you know when it's ready to be hit with whatever it is, and not something that you totally don't expect or doesn't make sense or whatever. Is that is that, is that a uh, a uh, um, fairly accurate uh, model of uh, conscious awareness. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. And 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 the important implication for this is uh, the pattern matching that our brain does. For the most part, we don't recognize that it's happening. We see the results of it, but right. we're not aware of the process by which those results came about. And that if you become aware if you just start paying attention like the advice i generally give is is if you want to take it this far is in anything that you do in any reaction you have ask yourself why am i doing this why did i have this reaction and uh and with practice you begin to notice that uh that it's based on on some sort of pattern that uh that we have learned through our lives behavior patterns. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, I think he called them scripts and uh, yeah. uh, reality tunnels. And, uh, but these are, these are learned behaviors that are so deeply ingrained that we're no longer even aware of them. Mm-hmm. And so you, if you start just to pay attention, you can become aware of them. And by becoming aware of them, it becomes possible to change them. Or, you know, maybe a script used to be appropriate isn't anymore let's you know you can replace it with something that is through you know the traditional method is through repetition there there are faster methods but uh, (laughs) that's the uh, old-fashioned way so actually for uh, either of you the the next question for me because i'm selfish and this is my show is (laughs) if this is what's going on with your conscious awareness what the hell happens when you see something you don't expect to see like a UFO or whatever. What what is your what do you think is going on with your pattern recognition at, at, at that point? Because if you look at the literature, it's all over the map. People That's right because people, people's patterns because do something we, different. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And because what what you see is really what you expect to see. So uh, so for instance, the, the the story that I wrote that you referred to uh, I can recap it real quick. Please so, do. Uh, Please do. 
Me, my friends and I uh, built some uh, some hot air balloons with uh, with birthday candles and dry cleaner bags, and we let a bunch of them off, and they floated off over the city, and they looked great. They they were gorgeous floating blobs of light, and the next day there was a newspaper column talking about this, and you know the the reporter had contacted all the usual people about you know what was this. So he included a half dozen different theories. I think I saw a YouTube video of that. Was there a YouTube videos of those? Oh, no, this was well before YouTube. (laughs) Oh, okay. uh, (laughs) Anyway, carry on. So, uh, so, so all of the explanations were different and they were all in line with what you would expect the person who said them was going to say so the scientists were talking about you know uh swamp gas or birds or you know people just high people looking at this at the sky uh the ufo folks were saying well these are clearly flying saucers you know you had everybody saw what they expected they all described what they saw correctly their interpretations of it they were all wrong (laughs) And so, uh, because because they saw what they were primed for. So that's weird. So they, they you mean they they all said there were glowing blobs floating over the city. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, what it looked like from an objective point of view, it was four glowing balls of light flying in formation across the city. Right. That that, that was the visual effect. So explaining what was causing that effect was where nobody guessed right. <laughs> but but when, when the reporter asked them, what did you literally see, they all said basically the same thing, and they all saw what we saw. <laughs> they just didn't know what it was they were looking at. And, and so, yeah, so, the, so, the, so they all saw what they were predisposed to see. They're, they interpreted according to their worldview, and uh, none of them were right. Well, here's a nasty one. Well, how how would you get around that? Would that be just to describe what you saw and leave it at that? Because uh, th- well, there's would... got to be some sort of interpretation, I guess, at some point. See, I'm, the, the thing is that with the UFO thing, I'm saying that people are so wrapped up in what they expect to see and what they expect and what what their trip is on it that the original experience is never really considered. It's just because it's not, it's not exciting enough or I never, what the hell it is, what the hell it ever, whatever it is. But if you concentrated on the original impression without any interpretation, that, that might be some sort of an answer as to a source of it, I guess. I don't know. I might be grasping at straws here because we're prisoners of, of our, um, of our pattern recognition, right? Well, that's right. That's right. I have two answers for that. And the first is, How if what you're looking ourselves? for is objective truth, then uh, then I can't come up with a better answer than the scientific method. Right. And uh, it's slow, <laughs> but bit by bit, we figure stuff out. And uh, Yeah, but, but you have to have a theory to, to, uh, to, to test it against. Y- well, you, you, yes, eventually oh, hypothesis. you do. I'm but, sorry, but, hypothesis. But but you don't have to start with one. You know, you can start with observation, and then uh, you know you can mm. sneak up on the hypothesis. But yeah, but I, I have a second answer, which is uh, more of a philosophical one. Which I would say, uh, to a certain extent, does it matter? 
that uh, that our experience of the world is true. You know, whether it's an agreement with other people or not, our subjective experience happened mm-hmm. to us. We experienced it. Yes. And so there's a certain argument that would say that's kind of good enough. <laughs> you know, that. Yes, uh, yes that, I agree with you. That, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. The subjectivity. Objectivity and subjectivity, especially with paranormal stuff, seem to get a very bad rap on both sides. Well, that's true. Well, if if you are doing science, then subjectivity is your is your enemy. That that that's that's specifically what you're trying to avoid because the whole point of science is trying to get rid of the preconceptions to try to not be influenced by by the existing patterns. Right. And uh, and it should it, be. which is really painfully difficult to do. Yes, it's, <laughs> and, it's uh, uh, so, very rare. Yes, so people who are focused on accomplishing this, you know, kind of ideologically, they would view the people who are into subjective experience as being kind of the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> They're trying to accomplish opposite things. I think where people get tripped up is when they start to argue that uh, one way is better than another. They're both different, and they're both trying to accomplish slightly different things. Yes. You know. I, I think if we throw away the subjective or the objective, or as much as the, we can think something can be objective, it's it, it, it's a detriment to when you're trying to understand something, especially something that's so individualized as as an experience of something very strange. That's right, and 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 science, you know, the scientific method does not do well with transient events. Ah, uh, yes. you know things. You know, the scientific method works best with stuff that's repeatable. Yeah. So much so that if you can't repeat it, it's not really considered in the realm of science at all. Right. <laughs> and, and and so if, if you're so a fundamentalist that, about it, it's considered not to exist. You well, know, if you talk to a scientist uh, or every science, you know, I've talked to hundreds. <laughs> and every, well, a, every a nice scientist I've talked to proven. about this would say that, you know, saying that something isn't in the realm of science is not saying that it's not true. It's just saying this is an area that science cannot be applied to. Uh, yeah. It's it's a, a different thing. Uh-huh. Or, or not proven, I guess, would be another stance. Right, right. But there's no denying that a subjective experience is a true experience. You know, the thought of a unicorn is a real thought. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's one thing you said on, and this, you know, it, it uh, well, you know what, it, it's obvious considering all the stuff that you've been uh, talking about here. Um, one of your entries, you, you mentioned that uh, memory is horrible because it's highly unreliable. Right, because we don't actually do much of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's, this is, you know, you know, I, I I feel the need to add a little disclaimer. When we're talking about brain and consciousness, you know, uh, uh, the fact is we know almost nothing about how any, how any of this stuff works. And, uh, and so, you know, with that said, what it appears to be mm-hmm. is that uh, you remember key things that have happened to you, just, just very the briefest of moments. And then in between those key moments, you make everything else up. And so you are not 
actually, when you think back on a childhood memory, you're not, it's not like you put a, a tape in a player and you're playing it back. It's not yeah. memory like that. You are, you understand the, the people who are at the scene and, uh, you understand how they would have reacted. You understand, you know, the patterns and you reconstruct what happened rather than remember it. Right. That, that's good and loud. And, and this is why memory is highly unreliable. And in fact, the more often you remember something, the less reliable that memory becomes. Because and you're just because spackling and spackling you, it with your with filling in these gaps. Well, that's right. And when you remember something, it kind of solidifies the memory in your mind a little more. Uh, but if you've made it up a little bit wrong, then that wrongness gets solidified too. And then the next time you've made up something that's a little bit more wrong, and that wrongness gets solidified. And so uh, our more, most accurate memories tend to be the ones that we haven't thought about for 30 years. You know, and then suddenly it comes back to us. Hmm. And our least accurate memories tend to be the ones we remember every day. And th- those are the ones we use to construct our legends. That's right. <laughs> the funny thing, when you just mentioned that, I never really thought about this, but a lot of people, when they have some kind of weird experience... I, I will get off this weird experience thing here in a minute. They will say that they thought of they thought of it years, years, years later, and they hadn't thought of it in years. And you ask them why, and they say they don't know. But they'll say, "Oh yeah, I remember this time where everybody saw this weird thing, you know, floating over the house." And the the um, the other people that were there will, will say the same thing. I haven't thought of that in thirty years. What? So what do you think is going on there? It was just so, my my explanation is it was just so strange that the brain your brain just kind of said well let's throw that to the side now for a while and uh, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> well, that's that's right. Well, that, this is pattern recognition in action that that something happened in your immediate environment that uh, that triggered the recall of a certain key thing, <laughs> and especially if you're with a group of people that have all shared this experience, then you begin to negotiate between all of you mm, yeah. what the memory actually is and it becomes <laughs> mm-hmm. an even more strongly shared consciousness experience or social experience and uh, it's i was just reading something about this uh the social effect of memory and i forget the term they used but this uh notion of collectively remembering things uh is a very powerful one that that it's much less common that somebody sitting alone in their study will suddenly remember something from 30 years ago than if you know you're with a group of your buddies and uh, you know something just happens to trigger something in one person, then they comment on it and that triggers something in the other person, right. and then this uh, interaction takes place by which the memory is reconstructed collectively. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. Is it any better if it happens, you know, immediately, if the recollection and the storytelling happens immediately after the event? I would guess so, but I don't actually know. Yeah, I I wouldn't know either. I mean, you would say, you would think to say yes, but maybe not so fast. Well, immediately after the event, we're talking short-term memory, which is an entirely different beast than long-term memory. Mm, That's right. But. But more importantly, uh, you know, we're talking about 
really the immediate perceptions that happened. Like, like if I, if I see a car accident, you know, 30 seconds after the accident, it's all fresh in my mind. I remember what happened, but uh, because it was an unexpected event, what I perceived may not be even close to be ac- being accurate. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yep. I'm remembering, but I may not be remembering something that was right in the first place. Very, very bad perceiving devices, recording devices, and playback devices that we have. (laughs) Or inaccurate. I'm not going to say bad. Especially uh, something that's traumatic like that. Uh, You know, if it's an accident, you're involved, other people involved, you're focusing on (laughs) certain specific things. You're obviously not seeing the big picture, you know. Oh, yeah. so, So once again, you fill in that big picture. That's right. That's right. We always have to have the big picture. I mean, this is why we invented religion. You know, we we have to have an explanation. How accurate that explanation is is less important to us than that there is one. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like if we really need an explanation. You know, I want to hear this story. So you've got to sit there and make up a story, not only to get it straight in your head, but to be able to tell to somebody else. And that, in the act of telling that story, you're you're like you said, extrapolating yourself away from whatever went on but you know like the uh, storytellers of old you know that's (laughs) how they made their stories powerful though and made you know how you touch people is by that embellishment that has to go on well true but the storytellers storytellers of old were less concerned about factual accuracy than they were about a deep message yes true a message and maybe, depending on what they're doing, entertaining whoever they're talking to so that the message sticks with them. Well, that's right. And, you know, there's the old saying that everybody has a novel in them, the implication being that everybody's life is a novel. But the the actual truth is nobody's life is a novel because nobody's life follows a story arc like that. That when you tell the story of your life, you must distort things about it because in order for it to be entertaining, it has to be a story and has to have a beginning, middle, and end. Right. And uh, But really, nobody's life is really like that. That's an artifice. You know, that's just what we, we have a continuous stream of things happening to us that may or may not actually have a relationship to each other or an overall arc. And, yeah. Uh, doesn't it seem, though, that some people convince themselves <laughs> of that their life is a novel? You know, oh, they start. Absolutely. Yeah, they have an experience, and they start sharing that with people, and to put it into context, and to make it make sense to them and other people. You start building upon that. Uh, you know, with uh, maybe things that aren't exactly. True t- in the sense of truth, but it's true to the person living that uh, story. That, that's I think that's absolutely true, and and I'll take it a step further, and I'll say I am myself one of those people. That mm-hmm. I, I think that, that that we all, you know, you know, whenever you say all, you're wrong. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, some, but not that, all of yeah, us. That, that, that there does seem to be a basic human need to have everything be a coherent story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we do that for our own stories in our own heads, even if we never tell other people, you know, my, when I, when I think back on my life, there's a clear arc, Yeah, you know, when yeah. I really analyze it, it's, it, it, there's not a, I, I am, I am enhancing some things and de-emphasizing others to create that arc that, that I could, I could enhance and de-emphasize in a different way that would 
make no arc whatsoever. They're both valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, before uh, we run out of time, I wanted to move on to the other part of my uh, uh, what I wanted to ask you. Well, both of you, I guess, because uh, you, I, how much have you talked together about uh, the stuff we're talking about? You, t- uh, Adam, and um, John. Uh, just one occasion thus far. Because when I looked at his site, not only you know the stuff we're talking about is very obvious on there, but there's another whole part of the site, and it seems like the theme of it is basically a Discordian view of things, and in, and, and in a deeper level, kind of a, a mixture of uh, Western occult practice with Discordianism, which is wonderful, hilarious, and, and very fruitful in the way that I was reading it. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, that's my goal. I'm glad you, you found it that way. <laughs> Yeah, the the, uh, the the thing that I noticed uh, most, I guess, was the uh, the series on, I forgot what it's called, but it's basically a find your t- true will, um, the do what thou wilt. And your excellent- Magic for materialists. That's it. That's it. Where, well, why, you know, I, I can explain what I thought it was, but um, what was your goal in writing that piece or that series of pieces? Because I enjoyed it thoroughly. What like, I will tell you, what I thought was you took a lot of uh, Western magical occult traditions and strip them down to something very basic and understandable without the mumbo jumbo, which is commendable. So why did you write that stuff? Do you want to help people? Do you, do you think it's, it's valuable? You must. I wrote this. I do think it's valuable and, and it's an incomplete series. <laughs> so I, so I need to pick it up at some point again and start, start adding to it. But, uh, but my goal was well. The title says it all: the Magic for Materialist series. So I uh, am in, in an unusual position socially in that uh, <laughs> I have I have close friends who are hardcore scientific, by the book, mechanical universe kinds of people, mm-hmm. and I have very close friends who are straight up mystics, and and I think that both of these these kinds of people are correct. <laughs> and so my goal was to try to explain how that could be, how the mystic and the scientist can both be right, even though on the surface of it, it appears that they're disagreeing with, with each other every step of the way. I don't think they actually are. In what way are they similar? Because I, I guess their goals are to find out something about our relationship to the world. I suppose. Well, I suppose the easiest way to explain it would be to uh, to to back up and a, a revelation I had personally is I, I am a software engineer and have been since you know for thirty five years, and at some point it occurred to me that what I was doing was literally no different than practicing magic. I was manipulating symbols in order to achieve an effect in the real world. That that is magic. And so although everything that I was doing was scientific and totally rational and explainable. And so uh, that became the, the seed of this idea that I, I am doing something that is, that is equally accurately interpreted by both worldviews. Well, in what way? I mean, you, when you talk about – there was one essay about uh, basically changing the way you did things or – achieving a goal by you know it's it's you're reading it's like well this is kind of like self-help but that's what western occultism is but science can be used that way too but the 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 thing yeah what i saw in there was 
think of something that you want to have done and then just write it down every day. Write it out. Like, what did you say, three times a day or five times a day? And just do that until the thing I happens. I went for 23 just, just because of the 23 oh, thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so the, the point is that, uh, that uh, I like the phrase meat robots, <laughs> that, that we are all meat robots in the sense that pretty almost all of our daily actions are are robotic that they are they're the results of programs that we have we have taught ourselves that we aren't actually thinking about it you know when somebody says good you know how are you and you respond i'm fine you haven't <laughs> thought about a, a bit of that and <laughs> and this is how most of our days are spent and uh so one of the uh ways that people can go wrong you know that can that we perceive as mental illness is when these programs are not appropriate for everyday life. And uh, so a way to conceptualize that is uh, you can rewrite them. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, repetition is the traditional way you do this. And so because, it's, because what, our, what our brains know is what they have repeatedly experienced, which is why you can convince anybody that something is true if you just tell them it's true often enough. And uh, because that's the way our brains work. So you can, you can change yourself. You can change your own behavior uh, in a conscious way by writing a list of, you know, you know writing, writing a sentence that describes the change that you want every day. And uh, that, that's enough. That's telling your brain something over and over again. And then your brain starts to believe that it's true, what, whether it is or not. <laughs> doesn't matter and so uh if what you're telling your brain is true is something that uh will lead to your life being improved that's only a good thing and so that's and that is magic that is invocation yes but it's also it's also a logical way to go about something that based on how your brain works and just using it in the way it works to change well, like Aleister Crowley said, to, to, to have reality to conform to your will. That's right. Well, we make we make up reality anyway. Right. So yes. So that's, yeah. So is, exactly yeah, is reality conforming to your will? Is your your are your patterns or your your point of view just changing so that it it becomes the the way that things are because that's you know that's the way you want it to be instead of just blindly you know stabbing around and actually in a, in a very real sense that's a scientific method of doing something. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and this comes back to my point, which is uh, what we're talking – the difference between magic and science is largely a difference of definitions. Mm. It's, it's not really so much a difference of fact. It's, you know, uh, that, that in this case, what I'm, what I'm talking about is psychology. And, and in fact, you know, everything I say in those essays, you know, you could pull right out of a – Right out of a psychology manual. This is this is vanilla everyday psych, you know psychotherapist stuff, but it's also magic, and uh, and you know that that when I describe it in magical terms, then magicians will say, well, yeah, this is this is old hat stuff, you know, this, of course, and uh, but we're really whether it's science or whether it's magic depends on how you want to look at the world. It's in the end, it's the same thing. So it doesn't matter. I, I think that's my underlying point. <laughs> oh, okay. 
I, uh, uh, my friend Robert, who's been on the show before, actually messaged me. Um, he said, if our live, this, he's probably stepping back a little bit because he was uh, listening. Uh, uh, I didn't see this t- till now. If our lives are actually more about distortion and chaos that we keep trying to find patterns and plot lines for to help us manage ourselves, then could anomalies like UFOs and other high strange events of total distortion possibly be, be there to help us move towards accepting a life of complexity and chaos? Should we be seeking a life without pattern? I, I would. My, my personal <laughs> answer that would be no. <laughs> that, uh, that we need pattern. That without pattern, we become psychotic. That, uh, that, that's, that's a bad thing. That, but, but I would argue what's also a bad thing is just letting the patterns we've collected continue without examination. That this is, this is an avenue of self-exploration and self-awareness and self-improvement that is critical. That if we ignore this, then, uh, then you know, we're, we're limiting ourselves. Well, is it... Isn't schizophrenia a pattern of sorts where you're convinced that everybody is out to get you? Well, not necessarily. Par- paranoia is often linked with schizophrenia, but it doesn't have to be. You know, mm-hmm. schizophrenia is uh, well. I, w- I would maybe say I, from, maybe I should have said paranoia, but go ahead. <laughs> I would say I would say from 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 this point of view, schizophrenia is. Uh, the inability to make coherent patterns or, you know, that, uh, that a schizophrenic is making basically random patterns. And, uh, and, and this is, this is the problem. This is where the voices come from. Uh, you know, it's, it's pattern matching gone out of control and, uh, kind of like a, I guess a cognitive epilepsy. Mm hmm. Oh wow! I'm but, just I'm just thinking yeah. about a lot of you know conspiracy type uh, thought <laughs> and what, what, and people do that. Uh, that that that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Pattern matching. Yeah. What did you say? Pattern matching gone haywire. Yeah, out of control. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Adam. You were going to say something. Oh no, I was just thinking of Kerry Thornley, and he he fell in. Huh. You know, he he was diagnosed as uh, paranoid schizophrenic from different. Friends of his I talked to, and somehow he was able to get himself out of that state. But I just I thought of the term pattern to describe him because it became this pattern in his mind um, that uh, every everybody was out to get him. Everybody was part of the uh, conspiracy, you know, even his uh, close friends for years and years, all of a sudden – yeah, even people in the Discordian Society, you know, was convinced that uh, maybe that was some type of CIA front organization. And so that was kind of this negative pattern, paranoid pattern that got uh, locked into his head. And I think he was able to escape that to a certain degree over the years. That sounds right. You know, it's a paranoia is a natural place to go. You know, it's why, uh, it's why, uh, like there's so many, uh, psychoactive drugs, you know, a side effect is paranoia that we are from an experiential point of view. We are all literally the centers of the universe that, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. that I, I stand in the middle of the known universe at all times, <laughs> that the world 
experientially is all about me. And so it's a very, it's a very, you know, egomaniacal kind of situation from the get go. And paranoia is really just a variety of, uh, of, of an egomaniac that, that in order for everybody to be out to get you, you have to be so important that uh, people yeah. want to be out to get you. Right. And so, you know, it's sort of a natural place to go anyway. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if the pattern matching gets out of control, you know, I could see that that would be a common okay. pattern to go to. I, I get what you mean by pattern matching out of control. Yeah. I have a question I, I like to ask people, and I haven't been able in a long time. Um, everybody knows, at least people probably listening to the show, that there's a lot of you know, weird ritual, mumbo-jumbo, chanting, all this stuff associated if you get deeply into the occult. Um, do you think that a lot of that has a, you know, is, 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 this may be a, a, uh, a question of... Um, of definition again, I think it is because, like you said, everything is. But do you think a lot of that stuff w- affects the world so that the world conforms to what you want, or that's just what you think is going on? I mean, do you, do you think it affects? Because people have this idea that they, you know, like I say, <laughs> when people join the Golden Dawn, they want to find out when they can smite, and that has. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> when do I get to smite? Um, but well, what other point would there be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, I think the point and, and you've basically said this is, is, is much deeper and it's, you know, Israel Lagarde's thing about you should go to a very heavy course of psychotherapy before you do any of this. Um, <laughs> because you start getting, thinking that you're the one controlling everything and that the reality is conforming to your will, not that your will is 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 uh, is uh, is conforming to reality i suppose so i think would you agree i with would that? say what's really important would be uh, to would be a suspension of belief i think people are they are ready to believe things way too quickly especially if they're in accordance with things that they're sympathetic to yeah and uh, like when but, do i get to this smite? is this is where we go wrong so so uh, like if you have like a witch's coven that gets together and does rituals for to have some effect or another, and that effect or another happens, you know, is it so wrong to, to, to think that one interpretation is that your activities influence the outcome? It doesn't seem like that's necessarily so wrong unless, unless that defines your entire belief. And uh, I think that's where we get where we get off track. Oh, yeah, or if you become um, hypnotized by the the apparent cause and effect. That's right. That's right. Well, and this is something else I was going to bring up about this whole thing is that I do believe that uh, that that magical workings that that evocations mm-hmm. work. I think where I may disagree with a lot of of magicians and mystics is the mechanism by which they work. That I'm I'm not so convinced that there is an external power that is being that is being uh, molded and manipulated by such workings. I think it has more to do with uh, with what's going on inside ourselves. <laughs> In a, this is a. This is this is good for five or six additions to the Magic for Materialists <laughs> <laughs> series. Yeah, well, that's another question. Is it, have you gotten any feedback on that? Like, you're insane, or why are you telling all these people these things, or you know, whatever? Uh, what, have you gotten any reactions to it, or do you take 
comments. I didn't even look. I just read them and said, this is great stuff. And I didn't even really bother to see if people were commenting on it. Well, this, this is a series I originally published about 12 years ago. Oh, and, wow. And so at, at the time I originally published it, I did get quite a lot of feedback. Uh, all except for one was positive. And the one negative one was from a, was from a Christian fundamentalist. Oh, well, who, of course. Uh, who, who thought I was, you know, Satan incarnate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go on with this and go on with this. I had one other th- thing that I said was completely off the map, which is wonderful, and it was on your site. What's the thing with the MIT lockpicking manual? What is that? Why did <laughs> why did you publish it? And you know, I didn't. I don't know if I read the. I didn't even think you re- wrote much of a commentary on it. You just provided the PT the PDF of it. What what was that? Right. Why did they? You know, why did it exist? And why did it get out? And are people using it to break into places now? <laughs> <laughs> they always have been. This isn't this isn't really secret knowledge. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But it just so, made it more accessible. And I, I wanted to know what, why you published it and you know what was the fallout I, from it, but either from you or it, from actually having it go out. Give a little background on this because I haven't uh, seen this post. In uh, in the '60s, uh, at MIT, there was a, a, a an influential group of hackers that did all sorts of things. And one of the things that they did was uh, published just amongst themselves a manual for how to pick locks, because uh, much of what they did involved gaining access to areas where they shouldn't have had access to. And so uh, this this manual escaped into the the larger domain. You know, this is pre-internet. This is you know, I, I first came across it on a BBS, you know, several lifetimes ago. Uh-huh. And uh, so yeah, it's like from '91 or something. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, so I put it up because, uh, well, in part because it has to do with hacking in the good sense of uh, learning how things work and how to manipulate things, which really is the underlying theme of the website in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I, I am I am at its root a hacker. Whether we're talking about hacking physical locks or hacking consciousness, it's right, sort right. of the same thing. And uh, so, so it's basically up there for tradition. Is <laughs> really would be the most accurate answer. <laughs> oh, so it's just kind of a well. This is a, this is the same thing I've ta- I'm talking about here, except on a kind of a different level and a physical level. And um, here's a group of of of. Uh, of holy men that are telling you how to get into locks. <laughs> well, and, and I also believe that you can lockpick your way to enlightenment, that, uh, that the activity of lockpicking itself is very similar to the activity of modifying your own behavioral habits and very similar to, to even when we were talking about missing fundamentals and whatnot, in the sense that, uh, that, uh, Oh shit, it's alchemical. Lock, you, you, are you must achieve a sort of unified consciousness with the lock. You can't see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all about feel. It's all about you know, you know, uh, uh, yeah, just that, just feel that 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 you aren't even paying attention to your hands. You are you are learning how to be in the zone, and uh, and that learning how to pick a lock makes the rest of that easier to understand. It makes how your brain works easier, more to the surface, easier to understand. And it's kind of fun. And you never feel about losing a key. What you're talking about there, and I I interrupted you, I'm sorry, is um, 
Lock picking is alchemy. Yes, yes. <laughs> very much. Now, if your goal is just to like break into places, then there are much more efficient ways of doing that than picking locks. Yes. <laughs> so so the existence of the manual isn't really a security problem that 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 thieves aren't doing that anyway. <laughs> they're, they're using bump keys. <laughs> right, right. This is just a, it's basically taking Let's see. We're not going to t- turn um, lead into gold anymore. Um, right. And that, so the equivalent is picking locks. <laughs> yeah. I really like that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I've run out of questions. Um, do you two uh, have stuff that you want to throw at me or at, e- or at each other? I know probably Adam has a few things he wants to say, or maybe he doesn't. Uh, one thing I was thinking about was uh – what the heck was the guy's name? Persinger in his helmet. Was his name Michael Persinger? Yes, yeah. Uh, Canadian. Science, scientist in Canada, and supposedly he created this helmet back in the day. Now we're talking like this was in the mid-90s I started hearing about this, where uh, people put on this helmet and it would approximate a, uh alien abduction. Uh, I was just wondering if John knew anything about this or how you would go, what you would, what goes on with the the brain. Is that kind of like, uh, uh, you had this thing called hemisync back in the day where you'd, uh, Monroe Institute. Different tones would stimulate the brain. Uh, Just your thoughts on all of that. Oh, yeah, I I am familiar with that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't just do alien abduction experiences but uh, a percentage of the population also sees god and is visited by jesus and uh, yeah. and again it kind of depends on your world view what you're gonna get yeah, <laughs> set and set. So what, what 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 goes on with the, with the brain and how is it stimulated to do that through these devices well what what so uh so much of this yeah. answer is going to be who knows but uh <laughs> Technically, what's happening is uh, how do you go about doing that? So, well, you you they are very very powerful electromagnets that are that are that are switched on and off at a very high rate of speed. There's very particular frequencies that are required to trigger this effect, and uh, extremely powerful electromagnets. And so, kind of like uh, elect- electroshock. Y- y- well, n- no. So electroshock is actually putting current through the body, <laughs> and, and this this is not that. These are these. Are, this is like holding you know a powerful magnets up to your up to your head. Although these yeah. magnets, you know, you would you would never be able to buy anything like this. But uh, you'd, you'd have to custom make them. <laughs> but but apparently what's happening is uh, is it is it's causing physical deformations in the brain. At a, at a certain rate, which disturbs the, the, the neural processes. And that's really as far as, as, as much as I know about it. Uh, I think we need, to be, so. we need to be careful careful with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the you – know, yes. I mean, if you're, if, you, if you're running this in a lab, then yes. If, if you're worried about, like, it being weaponized in some way and – let loose on on an unsuspecting population. I don't think that's a legitimate concern, uh, just because of how magnetism works. <laughs> yeah, well, right. it's, it's... I, I'm I'm talking about uh, self. Uh, what do they call it now? Uh, uh, brain hacking or whatever. If you're trying yeah. to do this stuff on with yourself, well, how does this differ from the 
hemi-sync, the brain machines that were people were talking about. God, it, this seemed like 20 or 30 years ago now they were using – seemed like uh, – Using different alpha waves or whatever to like the dream you, machines. Well, the dream machine too. That was more visual, though, right? Hemisync was uh, two tones played at different frequencies um, that go in that you listen to in headphones that create uh, different uh, conscious states. At least that's what was claimed by the Monroe Institute that uh, invented it. The other th- the uh, the other thing you were talking about that Persinger invented was actually nicknamed the God Helmet. And just as, just as uh, John said here, it is using very powerful magnetic fields to affect change in your, in basically in your, I think your uh, frontal cortex. Um, and he discovered over many years, like you know, since the seventies or sixties of doing this research, of what frequencies, um, what amount of time they should be on and where they should be applied to create these kind of uh, experiences. And it, apparently after a while, he could do it on demand. I had a guy on, um, Tim Brigham, our friend. I think he ordered one and it was is using one at, at a uh, institute, I mean, at an a, a, um, a educational institute, institution in, um, in the, uh, where he lives. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's reproducible, but it, like uh, John said, it's, it's just... It's uh, tailored. It's set in setting. It's tailored for the person. You know, whatever your, whatever your preconception, right. your padded re- pattern recognition, or whatever it is that's sitting there, it will activate those. Well, yeah, it's like uh, hypnotic regression. Once again, set in setting or whatever <laughs> psychedelic drugs you're using to yeah. inform my, my, your my, experience. My, my underlying assumption is that there's very little risk in using these devices. That uh, they, they don't seem to cause physical harm. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I heard they, you say I heard you say deform the brain. I went, whoa! Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. I was I was speaking technically. That's probably scarier than I intended. It deforms, it deforms <laughs> okay, the they're signals. Not act, they're not actually moving around your brain. No, they, 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 they phys, it probably is physically nudging neurons, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but. But, but, okay. but to a less less degree than uh, you nudge them when you bang your head on things, and uh, well, I mean, that, your brain's yeah, that... <laughs> your brain's sloshing around all the time. But, the, <laughs> I think the key difference is with, with the God helmet, the neurons are being nudged in unison. <laughs> and, yeah, in know. the right place at the right time, and you're ba- you're basically taking your. You're doing radar jamming on your on your uh, brain waves and and the electrical activity in your brain. I think. Well, this would be my guess, I, and, I'm, and I'm only guessing. But, but you know, when I was talking about how thoughts uh, are not like like signals running through circuitry in the brain, it's more like uh, more like uh, patterns of biochemical activity that washes across the whole brain. And so, uh, so a device like this very likely interferes or modifies the the, the patterns of 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 the, this. Uh, biochemical uh, uh, movement and so thus would would modify consciousness and I I would guess that a biologist would say that uh, basically it's throwing a monkey wrench into <laughs> what's <laughs> happening in the brain and these uh, the abduction experiences and the seeing God experiences are very likely a process you know a result of of our cognitive systems trying to make sense of something which just can't be made sense of. 
Yeah, it goes right back to your, you know, the 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 that uh, the reality is your the patterns you have, and, and also your expectations of what the what what things are supposed to be on a on a conscious and subconscious level. That's right. That's right. On the on the other hand, like uh, the the most uh, powerful hallucinogenic experience I've ever had was with salvia divinorum. Really, oh. and uh, experience I had on that was was as real to me as everyday life, although fantastical in nature. And so to this day, I'm still disinclined to say it was a hallucination, although it clearly <laughs> was. Was there, a, but, was there a you there? Was there an I there during it? Oh, absolutely, yes. Because okay. yes. I've never I, heard people have a kind of an ego death experience on DMT. It's more like the funniest one I'd heard was somebody imagined that he was the side of a house and somewhere, somewhere in America in the 1950s, and he was going to remain that, <laughs> the side of that house forever, and it terrified him. <laughs> wow. What happened no, to you? Yeah, mine was – I was definitely present, and, uh, and I was visited by uh, a, a spiritual teacher from my past and had a conversation. It was very, very interesting. One of the epiphanies is a write-up about that that I wrote. It's on my site, actually. Hmm. And, uh, but, you uh, mean a, pa- but, a, past, a past life type experience? No, 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 no. Uh, earlier in my life, I, uh, I uh, had a very important spiritual teacher, I suppose, would be the best way to put it. Although that has connotations I don't mean to have. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, and had lost track of her for decades and so when i had this experience the hallucination was revolved around meeting her again and getting an answer to a question i had always wondered about which i got an answer and it and i found it you know psychologically satisfying whether or not any of it is is irrelevant (laughs) yeah is she is she still alive i doubt it but did you had, did you did you contact her after this experience asking? Uh, hey, no, I have <laughs> I have no way of knowing, knowing yeah, how okay. to contact her. All right. Although I've I've often wondered if I could duplicate it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm guessing probably not. Yeah, these things don't tend to be un, under your physical. Con- I mean, your uh, any kind of control. They, the things just kind of happen, I guess. At least in my experience. Oh, just like the meditation, you know, you can you probably tr- control a little bit better, but you ultimately you don't know what the hell is going to happen. That's right. That's right. You know, I think you know very clearly. You know, what came up for me personally was that I had something unresolved I needed an answer to, and and the gift of of this experience was I got an answer. You know, mm-hmm. that 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 worked for me. You know, whether it was entirely hallucinatory or not, it, it probably was. I mean, the scientist in me says, you know, this was a drug experience, that nothing in it was real. Right. Well, but, none, none, of that, none of that matters, really. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The mystic the in me says, this, this, this was as real as anything else I've experienced, and so why not accept it at that level? And it helps me to do so. So I do. Well, what it seems like you're able to do is just basically accept things if they're helpful and reject things when they're not, which is probably the the best you could do, you know, in yeah, life. Well, <laughs> what else can we <laughs> you know, well, one if, thing if, if, if a spirit came to you and told you you were a lousy crumb bum, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I don't – spirit, I reject you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
or like I was, I was, I was once <laughs> in years ago. I was interviewed about Discordianism and uh, and uh, had you know this uh, my summary of that explaining it to people who don't have no clue about Discordianism. Oh, that's that's a, that's a di- that's a difficult. Uh, it's it's impossible. <laughs> but my my wrap up of the whole thing was you know. You know, if this, if if thinking of things in this way is helpful to you, yay, go to it. <laughs> if it's not helpful to you, that's fine. Who cares? You know, find find a way of thinking that is helpful. Mm-hmm. That's you know, the important yeah. thing is that you think. It's not exactly how you think. <laughs> I suppose, and then you know, if, if you if if you're thinking yourself into misery, that's probably the wrong thoughts. Well, that's right, and 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 that's how we become miserable. I mean, I, I've known people who've lived cursed lives, and I've known people who've lived blessed lives, and I've never found a correlation between happiness and what circumstance the person was living in. And you know, yeah, it, yeah, okay, yeah. No, well, it, it, that, I think I hope that people understand that it's been proven over and over. But yeah, in the in the midst of trying to live and make a living and uh, keep keep your you know keep people close to you happy or or entertained or whatever and keep people that you don't like away from you etc cetera, etc cetera. all this stuff we've been talking about sort of gets shoved to the back for a lot yeah, of really people, does. for a lot of people it, and and I think to to our detriment I think this is important stuff well I you know I've seen immensely wealthy people <laughs> that are totally miserable and people who are dirt poor that seem to be uh, very content on some level, you know. So, yeah, a lot of this goes on within us. Well, that's right. I, in fact, I, again, I put it on my site. But I, years ago, I wrote a book for my daughter about uh, about magic. When she, she had become fascinated with Harry Potter. And so I kind of wanted to <laughs> counteract that. <laughs> so... Uh, so, but the key message I had for her, it was really the dream book every dad wants to write for their children that just, you know, there's only a handful of things that I know that I really want to pass on. Here's yeah. the handful of things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the key thing was that you can't always decide what's going to happen to you or what, what your circumstances are, but you can always decide how you're going to react to them. And how you react to them is what determines your your amount of happiness. Yeah. Well, see, now we've uh, pushed ourselves up to uh, two minutes left. Do you want to, uh, and I've enjoyed this immensely, do you want to uh, uh, give people a little bit of idea what, uh, well, what what's the name of your site? And, um, well, that's it, because people, they want to know about it, they can just go to it. Yeah, yeah, my, the name of my site is Singlonesia, which uh, may or may not help you get there. <laughs> yeah. Great can link it on his. I'll link uh, it. Yeah, Singlenesia. Are you still writing for it? Is it is it current? I, I do. I do still write for it. Uh, I update it. I've been updating about every other week at this point. It, it, I go in phases. Yeah. Well, I, that's. I think anybody that's doing anything like this, which is kind of a project and a life project, that's how it goes. Unless you're retired yep. or something. Um, <laughs> even if you are retired, because life gets in the way. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. And sometimes, you know, you just, you just got nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that's the, that's the real basic one. I got nothing. Uh, right. <laughs> I've, uh, 
really enjoyed our talk, and I also feel like we touched on about you know maybe ten percent of what we could have touched on. So if uh, if you two are both game, we can continue this again at some time. Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, great. Because I, I I never know what people think of the show till after. Some people are so polite, and then I never hear from them again. It's like, what what what, what did I say? What what happened? But you know what? <laughs> no, no, this was a very uh, fun, enlightening conversation. Yeah, I think so, too. The other thing I try to do on the show is if there's something – I don't like to hide things. And this is why I wanted to have um, John on because it seems like everything that he's thinking and everything that could be helpful to people is right out there on the site. It's very plain to see, and it's actually – you know, most of it is pretty plainly understandable. There's a few of things that are kind of, you know, uh, metaphor, but you, <laughs> you're communicating on a different level with metaphor, so that, that's yeah. fine. But, uh, you know, if, uh, if you would like, we'll, we'll continue this again at some time, and I'll, I'll uh, think of, a, you know, 20 or 30 more questions here. We, we got through all my questions, which actually doesn't happen very often, but I only put down, like, 12. <laughs> Usually I put down 20, and I never get through them because we just keep going and <laughs> go off on tangents, which is what I like. That's because you, know, you have to do 23. Huh? That's because you have to do 23. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, next time we talk, I will have 23 questions. <laughs> Our 23 well, this, talking this, points. Well, th- this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm I'm, uh, I'm glad you said yes when Adam uh, asked. And uh, yes, we will continue this again at some point, And I'll put up the, uh, the, uh, the site. I will link the site on the uh, interview when I put it up. Okay, I've never had you on the show, and I did this, do this every guest now. Do you have a musical selection that you would like me to play at the end of the show? <laughs> uh, not in particular. Although, actually, yes. What? <laughs> since you since uh, you had a previous podcast that brought them back into my consciousness, I would love to hear some Fibonacci's. <laughs> really, you knew about them? I did. Yes. Really? Like I had when they were about them? Really? When they were active? Really? But, uh, but I just I just I just uh, bought their best of off of Amazon, and I've been listening to it again, and it's been making me happy. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Oh, no, you pick. How about the Ed Gein one? Oh, old Ooh. mean Ed Gein, yeah. From Civilization and its discotheques, which is, uh, I don't think they actually, <laughs> yeah. I don't, actually, I don't think they put it on the um, the, the collection. So, uh, John uh, Fenderson and Adam Go Rightly, thank you so much. Thanks again. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. See ya. See ya. Bye. Have you heard of the scene? A man from Wisconsin by the name of Ed Gein. You helped me discover the beetles and stones, but he turned me on to the beauty of bones. At 16, my feelings for you haven't changed, but Ed Gein has shown me the meaning of strange. I'm doing a term paper on him for school. How could he be such a square and so